I'm feeling a whole lot better than I did last Thursday morning. You know, these birthdays can be a problem. You hit the ones with the big zeros after them. Ten years ago, uh, when I turned 50, uh, they called me at the house and picked me up in a hearse and brought me to the church, and Paul Sweats was in his robe out front waiting, and it said, you know, special parking for a funeral. And they parked the hearse there. I got out, and they took me up to the, the funeral service. Everything was black and dreary. And I decided I'm not getting out of bed anymore on those birthdays, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get out of bed on, on Saturday. You just leave me alone. Gonna, actually, well, you know, I found every year is more fun than the one before. I found sometimes every week is like that, including last week. You know, we had a uh, – it was not a quiet week in Lake Wobbegon last week after that amen message. I've, I've got a lot of good emails from you guys. And, uh, <laughs> and it reminds me why, why pastors usually don't poke their noses in politics because <laughs> it, just, it just upsets a whole bunch of people. And if I upset you, I'm really sorry. And uh, I'd just like to clarify a couple things. One is I don't know enough about policy making uh, to make public recommendations on most policies. Uh, and so I, I rarely even hint how I'm going to vote on something or anything like that because it's just not my area of expertise. And, and I think generally that's an abuse of I mean, you give me a microphone and you give me this time to teach, and I treasure that. And I, so I don't want to abuse it by spouting off on things where I'm, I have no commission to speak. Uh, so I, I, I'm usually very careful about that. And I want to say I, I, I'm not promoting a given uh, political solution that's on the table right now. Uh, you know, I, I will participate. I will try to make up my own mind and vote. And if you ask me in private, I might even tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, but the, here's, here's what I was saying, that I smelled a rat. Now, here's the rat. Let me be real specific. The rat is an issue of the heart. That's the rat I smell. And I hear it in the dialogue. And the rat is, uh, there is, and this is my area of expertise, it's diagnosing moral and spiritual hearts. And I hear something back there. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like in the, the blink you know, you, you make a quick decision after years of experience because you've seen patterns over and over again. And I've seen these patterns now for 30-plus years of ministry, and I, I recognize it. And the rec what I recognize is elitism and racism in the dialogue. That's what I recognize. And that's what I mean that this is 1963 over again, but it's the same rat, just a different chapter in the book. And it's a little bit more nuanced now a little bit more sophisticated, but that's the rat I smell. Now, let me say one other thing. Uh, there's a rat in all positions. And uh, I, I was speaking uh, about the position that I heard from the county side on this issue, but there's also a rat on the urban side. Now, here's the situation at Amen Bible Study and at Second Presbyterian Church. The overwhelming majority of those who are listening to me teach on Sunday morning or Thursday morning are white professionals. So why would I talk about a rat that doesn't have anything to do with you? Let's talk about our rat instead of somebody else's rat. So I, I, I don't pretend to be standing in front of the entire city and giving a balanced presentation on this. Uh, I'm standing before you, and I think I am giving a balanced presentation before us. Us men, white professional men. Now, we're very happy to have you non-whites. <laughs> really, we're very great. You can tell we desperately need you. 
So you're especially welcomed here. We like having you here, and we'd like to see more of you here. But we need to address the issues, no matter whether if you're black or white or Hispanic, you need to be sure that you're addressing the issues of your own heart. I mean, look at Ephesians 5 on marriage, and you'll find Paul doesn't say, now, husbands, I want you to listen to what the wives are supposed to do. Now, wives, I want you to listen to what the husband's supposed to do. He says, no, husbands, you die for your wives. Wives, you respect your husbands. Read your own mail. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. We want to be sure and check our own hearts first. And, and, and sometimes uh, what we get in situations like this is, yeah, well, maybe, but you know what they're saying. And you're, you're using that as a diversion. It's a diversion tactic away from your own heart. So, of course, others are doing things. They're men just like you are. Uh, but let's deal with our own stuff. So with those qualifications, I think I'll pretty much stand with what I said last week. But uh, I certainly have gotten a good education this week, and I expect to get another one this week, uh, this next week. And I'm, I'm trying to learn just like you are on this issue. And I really don't know what the solution is. Uh, I guess nobody does. But I would just say this, that we've got to take all the children that we can serve, all the families that we can serve, and do the best job we can to serve them all. And that's going to cost us something if we do it. And I think that's what we saw in Deuteronomy 15, that the way to live a godly life in covenant with the Lord is to take on the burdens of people around us. And that was what we were studying, the law of release. And what's interesting is that this law of release is embedded in his teachings about loving God and particularly the Sabbath. So you can see how Sabbath rest and social justice are connected to each other. It's very interesting. In fact, let's look at chapter 16. And we'll go into some further statements about how we are to use our time. And, and it's right there connected with social justice. The text right before chapter 16 and the one right at the end of chapter 16 that we're not reading today has to do with justice. One distributive justice and the other retributive justice. So Sabbath rest, delighting in the Lord, and social justice have always been intimately connected. And the more that we find ourselves resting in the Lord and worshiping Him, the more just our hearts are going to be. Well, let's take a look at it. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 17. And you'll see that what he's going to address here are three major festivals. There are minor festivals. But these were the three major festivals that every man who had been bar mitzvahed, every man 12 years or older, was to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Huge commitment. Let's look at it. Chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. 
And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God at you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Amen. What I'd like for us to do, first of all, is look at some general principles that are revealed in these 17 verses that include all of the feasts. And the first thing I'd like us to see is that our worship is top priority. Uh, On page 247 of your Bibles, uh, you'll see this chart that shows the feasts that were regularly celebrated in Israel. And, of course, the main one, the first one, is the Sabbath itself. That was a weekly feast. Uh, These others are annual feasts. And those of you who who come from a liturgical background, uh, you know that we have a a Christian calendar that has feasts in it. You know, the Feast of Advent, of Epiphany, of Lent, of Eastertide, of the season of Pentecost. And it's the same sort of idea, uh, although those feasts in the New Testament are not in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament era, but these are the Old Testament feasts that give us the whole idea that every year you take time out uh, to celebrate these feasts. Now, why is this so important? Well, because the Lord made us and he knows that we will consider important the things that we put time into. We know from studies that 70% of Americans will say that they value their time more than their money. It's interesting, the more money you make, the more that's true with you. The percentages of those who say they value time over money increases with making money. So that the new value is not money, the new value is speed. How many nanoseconds does it take your iPhone to convert a message or whatever and send it to you? Speed is the new value. So we all are valuing time very much. And I guess Benjamin Franklin started this whole thing. Time is money, he said. 
And we certainly feel that way now. In fact, we've, we, we think it's more than money. Uh, we value it more. So it's very difficult for us when someone says to us, even our wives, you know, if, they, if their love language is, is uh, time, quality time, uh, well, can't we do this in 10 minutes? <laughs> you know, uh, can't we have this conversation? You know, get this conversation, boil it down, give me the bottom line. My wife says that one of my signals is, is this. You know, come on, give me the bottom line. You know, tell me where we're going with this. And uh, so we even want to have relationships, you know, uh, that are microwaved, you know, that are given to us in the least demanding way possible time-wise. So generally speaking, we've all built big walls around our time, and we get very scheduled, and we just don't like anything invading it. Here's what the Lord is saying. You cannot fit worship into your busy schedule. It will never fit. You must do it the other way. You fit your busy schedule into your worship. And if you don't make that conversion, you'll never be a true worshiper. Because worship only fits into a Sabbatarian pattern. That's the reason we were given the Sabbath. That's the reason we were given annual festivals of worship. Because that's the only way you can worship. Worship is uh, only accomplished in rest. In fact, worship is our rest. And so until you push back the encroachments of the world on your time, push them back and create the margins and create the rest, only then can you worship. And if you're going to go to Sunday morning worship between getting up and working on your stock investments, get worship over, eat a quick sandwich, get back to reading the Wall Street Journal and your worship is just going to just be squeezed in there somehow, you'll never really worship. I encourage you to think seriously about the Sabbath. We've already touched on that in Deuteronomy. But look at these enormously long feasts that are being required, the huge amount of vacation time that's chewed up. In fact, you could say this was the vacation for Israel. It was vacating the workplace, vacating their homes, and going to Jerusalem to worship. It's amazing how we have secularized the whole idea of vacating for rest. Think about it. We've converted the whole idea of biblical rest and vacation into a holiday where we are filling our times playing instead of enjoying the Lord. Now, I don't want to mess up all your vacation homes and all your strategies for this summer. I've got mine too. But for sure, when you're going other places, would you please just at least take the Sabbath over there, wherever you are? Would you at least worship the Lord and enjoy Him with some other people in another place? That's where we really find our rest. And I find some guys who are just desperate to have some fun, just desperate to get away and do something that's going to bring meaning into their lives. Gentlemen, this is where it came from for Israel. This is the reason that you could, you could be a little carpenter or you could be a builder or you could be someone who keeps a vineyard or you could be a farmer, you could be a shepherd. 
and your life had deep meaning. You had discovered it in your feasts. That's where you discovered the meaning of life. And I just, I just fear that most people today have just been, uh, uh, just been swamped with a secular view of time that you must always convert every minute you can into money rather than converting time into redemption. And Paul says to us, redeem the time in Ephesians 5. Redeem it. And the first thing he said about your time was to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music in your heart, giving thanks to the Lord. And that's what it means to redeem time. So it's going to be very demanding. We should expect it to be. It's going to take a conversion of our outlook. We should expect that. And what's very interesting is that in Leviticus 26, you'll find that we're given the reason that the people of Israel were eventually thrust out of the land if it was because they violated this. They didn't give the land its Sabbaths. They didn't give the poor its Sabbaths. They didn't give themselves the Sabbaths. And they, too, were very reluctant to give up their time. As a matter of fact, you'll remember in Exodus 16, the first occasion when we're told that Israel was given the Sabbath to practice it. Of course, you have it in Genesis chapter 2 with the creation. But Israel was given the Sabbath to practice it in Exodus 16. They were told to collect the manna every day except on the Sabbath. And on the day before the Sabbath to collect twice as much and it wouldn't rot. And on the Sabbath morning, first Sabbath they ever had to celebrate, they go out the Sabbath morning to collect the manna. And there's none there. And they say, what's wrong? Where's the manna? They just It's just in their system. And the, the ironic thing is that most people here are too busy for your own good. And furthermore, you will admit it. And furthermore, down deep inside, you're kind of proud to admit it. Well, I know I just work too hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've always, had, I've always been a workaholic. I know, I know it's bad. Yeah. And, and inwardly, you know, everyone is holding you in high esteem because you're such a hard worker. That's how perverse it is that inwardly we take delight in even confessing the sin, which means we have no intention of changing, of course. Um, So what you have here is a presentation of what God wanted for Israel's life of rest and celebration. Worship is our top priority. Now look, secondly, second general observation I want us to make is that worship is habitual. Worship is habitual. It's a habit. And that's exactly what God is doing with this festival schedule. Let's remember creation. Let's remember redemption. Let's remember atonement. Let's remember what I did for you in the wilderness and providing for you. And you, you were traveling in booths. Let's remember it. And he, he makes it habitual uh, by making it cyclical, first of all. You'll notice he tells them exactly the months to do it, and the count the seven weeks, and and uh, the you know the seven days festival. He gives them explicit times when this is to happen. It's going to come around every year. It's like Easter and Christmas; those are festivals. We celebrate them every year. Why? We need to remember the incarnation. We may need to re- remember the resurrection, and so they're cyclical. They're also communal. This is part of the habit. It's not just you, gentlemen. It's you and your sons and all of those who are in your household, including sojourners, widows, and aliens. So anyone that's under your charge, you bring them to the festival, and these big festivals, uh, every male had to be there. 
every male in your household 12 years or older. I think this needs to get out among us today. Some of you do a great job of getting to church regularly and pushing back the margins of the demands in your life, creating some space when you can rest. And you're coming to church and your 18-year-old son is back in a sack. (laughs) Forget that. Right here, the Lord is saying, get those folks out of the sack. Anyone who's under your household, under your rule, as long as they're under your rule, as long as they're a minor, you are responsible for them as well as yourselves to push back the margins of time, create space for them, and teach them that they're to be engaged in worship. Do you have a general rule in your household? You know, I would tell my kids, look, uh, you can live anywhere you want to, (laughs) but you're going to live here. This is a worshiping household. And when your friends come to spend Saturday night, they're your friends. They're here Saturday night. They're all going to church on Sunday. So just tell them they don't want to go to church. Don't spend the night on Saturday night because this whole household goes to church. Gentlemen, please take charge of your household. Now, if your wife's not a believer, you can't be bossing her around on spiritual things like that. You can pray for her and you can weep for her and you can encourage her. But with your children, they're under your authority. Those of you, uh, probably we're split about half and half here, but those of you who have taken baptismal vows for your children, uh, you dedicated them to the Lord, which means like Hannah, you gave her over to Eli to be trained in the temple to be a priest. So when you take baptismal vows, you're promising to rear these children as priests and priestesses in the house of God. They can't do that if they're not here in the house of God. So you are violating what you swore to do. It's just a simple matter of integrity. Think back what you promised. And just, you can say, look, folks, I'm really sorry. I know you don't like church. and Sorry about that. Uh, it's your job to go, and it's your job to learn how to be happy about it. It is. It's your job to learn to be happy about it. And you get happy about it. And as they're grumbling, you can smile all the way to church. You know? Uh, you know, they're, they're learning. And if you keep your spirits up, and you keep your joy up, you'll find those kids will eventually come along and they'll thank you for it later, 95% of the time. But whether they do or not, you're fulfilling your job. This is what it is. It's communal. It's communal with your family. And then notice uh, we don't have different times for different cities to go to Jerusalem. You know, okay, everybody from Nazareth, this is your week in Jerusalem. Oh, everybody from Bethlehem, this is your week in Jerusalem. No, we're all coming together. And that's the reason that we go to church. It's communal. It's, it involves not just my family, but other people in the community, and hopefully diverse people in the communities, everyone in the neighborhood. Come on. Let's worship together on these feast days. That's the nature of it. And then notice it's corporal, meaning that it involves not just our minds, not just our theology, but our practice. As Robert Weber wrote, worship is a verb. We are engaged in it. Notice notice the physical actions that are involved in worship for these people. They are going to make a long trip. You know, Jesus made this trip. Remember when he was 12 years old? Okay? You have 12-year-old Jesus living in Nazareth. It's now required of him that he make his way to Jerusalem. His daddy went, but not just his daddy, his mommy too. And he undoubtedly had aunts and uncles and cousins that were going too. He made that long trip. That's a long walk if you've ever been uh, there. 
That'd be a long walk, and that's what they did. So just getting there is a huge exercise. That'd be about a three-day walk, and that's a hefty hike for three days. So by the time you ascend the hill from Jericho up to Bethany and then look down over uh, the temple, uh, you have been anticipating this for three solid days. And your legs are weary. And you're so glad that the journey has ended in the great city uh, where Mount Zion is. So it was very physical. You had to prepare for it. Mary had to prepare you know, <coughs> her... Um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches before that trip all the way and, uh, you know, put the, the drinks in the skins, you know, that they would carry along on the donkey. You had to prepare about for it. You had to think about it. You were also going to be talking with your cousins all the way there. That's how you got, got caught up with family is that on the way to Jerusalem, you can find out how all your little nieces and nephews are doing and watch them scrape and scrap with each other and, you know, separate them from time to time and really have family life. So it was very physical. Think what else you did. When you got there, you were in festal, festal procession. So there would be processions to the temple. Different groups would process. And then they would sing. It was very physical. It would require your lungs and your heart and your voice. And then they would give gifts. They would sacrifice offerings. And they would actually kill lambs and offer them on the altar. It was very physical. Now, what's the value of that? Well, two things. Number one, remember that we worship the Lord with our bodies as well as our minds and our souls. Uh, Paul says we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So when you come into worship, you ought to expect to kneel. You ought to expect to stand. You ought to expect to sing until your voice gets a little raspy. You ought to expect to give the substance out of your back pocket and put it in the offering plate. You ought to expect to be hugging people and greeting people and engaging bodily as well as mentally in the service. And even the procession from your house to the church that usually entails some sort of an argument. <laughs> and then you get out in the parking lot, hey, everybody, how you doing? Uh, but you ought to expect a very physical experience. If you dress a little differently for church or you get cleaned up and it takes time to repair, that's good. This is all part of the physical exercise of being in God's presence and finding His rest and celebrating His great work. So it's because God made us body and soul and therefore we give body and soul back to Him. But it's also good for this reason. It's corporal so that we'll remember it. Uh, sometimes, you know, you can't remember what happened unless you actually said it yourself or did it yourself. And that's the reason that we sing the hymns. Sometimes you remember the hymns better than you did the Bible text. And that message of things you're singing sometimes sticks with you more than the Bible does. So when you're actively involved in something, it will affect your life deeply. So it's, it's corporal. You'll notice that uh, in the making of these habits of worship. Then thirdly, notice that our worship is ordered. Uh, if you, and I just want to make these observations about the order, ordering of worship in these festivals. And you find repetitive statements to this effect. First of all, we're ordered to remember. Uh, ours is a his, an historical faith. The Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You were slaves and therefore this. Remember the wilderness, how you came through and God provided for you. And so we're going to sleep in booths. 
for a whole week. It's like Boy Scout camp out. You and your sons sleep in booths for a whole week while we're having this festival. Why? Because you're going to remember that the Lord took care of you when you were in booths in the wilderness. Why is it, gentlemen, that we will fast sometimes? Well, because we'll remember that we need the Word of God more than we need physical food. Why is it that we'll go through certain seasons, maybe even a whole day of prayer, so that we remember that Jesus was in the wilderness during Lent Himself for 40 days and 40 nights? So we remember ours is a historical faith, and we have to have time to remember. And I'm going to challenge you to take your calendars today sometime And I want you to look at this next year and see if it speaks anything of rest and worship. See if your Sundays are specially scheduled. See if you know what you're planning to do. See if every time you have an opportunity to be in town and be in your church, that's what you're doing. And see if you have looked at your worship schedule for you and your family and it's made a difference in the way you distribute your time so that you can remember. Secondly, he has us celebrate over and over again. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall be joyful in what you do. So we're not going to have any miserable worshipers. That's the reason I said the kids need to be told, not only are we going, but you must be joyful about it. Otherwise, you get no credit. (laughs) Because begrudging worship is an insult. Joyful worship is the only worship that is appropriate. Because of what he's done, remembering what he has done. And if you're remembering what he has done, then you will indeed celebrate. That's the reason we remember. It's to celebrate it, our liberation. Remember the exodus. We're no longer slaves. Remember the cross. We're no longer bound in fetters to sin. We are liberated. Remember the resurrection. We have new power and new life. Because of the resurrection from the dead, we have no fear of death. Celebrate! And when we enjoy the Lord, we indeed celebrate and rejoice. And so if you find worship a little bit of a drudgery, then repent, which is the next point. We repent. He says there shall be a solemn assembly. That's with respect to uh, the last day of Passover on the seventh day. So it is solemn. It's solemnly joyful. And so when we remember what the Lord has done for us, that is what empowers us to repent. So often we're trying to repent by looking at ourselves. Oh, I'm terrible. I'm awful. I need to change this. Okay, I want to really try. No, here's the way you do it. You look at what the Lord's done for you. You get your heart really full of joy and thanksgiving. And then you go out and you want to honor Him because you're so doggone grateful. And that's the way the Christian life works. And that's what these festivals were for. You have to push back the encroachment of the demands of time, create space for rest, get your heart thinking about what He's done, get your mind on Him, get your heart joyful because of it, and that changes you. And repent just simply means turn. You turn, you change when you're thinking about these things. And that also leads to the fourth thing, you'll offer sacrifice. They they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now He says... Everyone give as the Lord has blessed you. In other words, give proportionally. That's the, that's the genius of the tithe. Everyone gives proportionally. So your 10% is bigger than somebody else's 10%. Great. That means you have more to give. Great. Everybody give not what God hasn't given you, but get out of, give out of what He has given you. 
And so everybody's tithe will be a different number. Give proportionally, but sacrifice. You'll want to sacrifice a thank offering to the Lord. So those are the general observations in this text. Now, what you find, of course, in the New Testament, you know, we, we could say in the Old Testament, we understand the sacrifices were given because there were bloody sacrifices that were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. But what about in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, of course, Christ is the one we're consciously offering up always. Lord, I have no way of paying for my sins. There's no animal that, that I could give that would ever pay for my sins. There's no, there's no gift that I could ever give that would ever atone for what I have done. What I have done is infinitely grievous before you, so there's no way I could pay you back. So, Lord, I just simply put up before you again, remind you, you gave your son Jesus Christ for me, and therefore I know my sins are forgiven, and therefore I rejoice because the great sacrifice has been offered, and you gave him. So we are remembering that on the Lord's day, and therefore we know that we're free because we are free indeed because the perfect sacrifice has been made. If we didn't think we were free, it must be because we didn't think his sacrifice was sufficient. It's for lack of faith that we don't believe we're free. Faith leads us to know that we're free because his sacrifice is infinitely valuable and covers the sins of all of his people. But then in the New Testament, you also find mention of some tangible sacrifices that we can give. It doesn't add to the atonement of Christ. It's an expression of our gratitude for the atonement of Christ. The first one is the sacrifice of praise in Hebrews 13. He says, offer from your lips a sacrifice of praise. So when you open your mouth to sing, you're actually offering a tangible sacrifice of thanksgiving for the great once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says that when the Philippians were supporting him financially, it was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. So when we give monetary gifts for the work of the kingdom, which is what the Philippians were doing, supporting their missionary, when we give monetary gifts, whether it's tithes or beyond the tithe and offerings, that's a sacrifice that is a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord when it's given from a cheerful heart. And then, of course, we mentioned Romans 12, where Paul says, offer your whole body as a living sacrifice. So we go out into the world to live for him. Everything, not just 10% of our lives, 100% of our lives given for his service. That's our sacrifice. So there are three tangible thank-offering sacrifices in the New Testament that we offer in worship, and all of them are to be given. Now, let's look uh, at each of these festivals and learn from each one of them some things for our own practice in finding the rest of God, keeping His commandments, walking in His covenant, which is what this is all about. You want to be in covenant with the Lord? Okay, get Him in your calendar. Put Him in your, in your time schedule. And here we go. Let's look first of all at the Feast of the Passover. We must keep the Feast of the Passover, verses 1 through 8. He says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Now you'll find... The Passover in four out of five of the books of the Pentateuch. Obviously, it's extremely important. And I've mentioned there Second Chronicles 30 and 35 where Hezekiah and Josiah, respectively, uh, reinstated the Passover. You'll find Ezra reinstated the Passover. Why did they have to reinstate it? Because, gentlemen, the encroachment of time. It's not just New Testament. It's not just 21st century in our busy schedules. No, sir, Rebob is right back there at the very beginning 
of this giving of this commandment. As soon as this commandment was given, the people don't want to obey it. They'd rather spend their time doing something else. And what you find during the kings with the decline of morality in the kings of Israel, one thing that would always go off the edge of the cliff is the Feast of the Passover. Josiah didn't even know anything about the Feast of the Passover until they recovered Deuteronomy out of the temple. And the priest Shaphan read it to him, and Josiah tore his robes and said, we're in sin, basically. We've got to reinstate this wonderful gift of the Feast of Passover. And they say that Josiah celebrated the Passover like had never been done, even in the days of David, because he was so grateful to the Lord. And you'll see Josiah, of course, was a tremendous reformer. He destroyed all the idols that were in Israel. He reinstated the law of God in every area of life. But he couldn't do it without the Passover. Why? Because unless you know what God has done for you, the death angel passed over Israel and delivered them out of Egypt and the bondage of slavery. Unless you are aware of what God has done for you, you're not going to move forward and do for him. And Josiah, of course, understood that. So it had to be reinstated over and over again. When the people were taken into exile, and we've already said, Leviticus tells us why, they didn't keep the festive calendar, so they're off into exile. Now what happens when they come back? Do they reinstate the Passover? No. Ezra, the preacher, has to come back and say, Hey, guys, you remember why we got vomited out of this land about 70 years ago? Well, Let's be sure we don't have that happen again. Let's reinstate the Passover. So you'll find that this is an area of your life that's going to be regularly attacked and you're going to have to keep pushing back the margins of the world's demands on your time so that you're a man of rest and your family is a family of rest and you're worshiping Him. So uh, you'll see that in Second Chronicles and in Ezra. And then, of course, what do you find in Matthew 26 that Jesus says to His disciples you all prepare the Passover. And this is the night that he, w- he was betrayed, wasn't it? He says, you all go prepare the Passover. And what does he do? He takes the Passover and he reinterprets it. He says, this bread, this unleavened bread, this the bread of affliction, this bread is my body. And he breaks it and he says, it's going to be broken for you. Then he takes the cup. There were four cups in the Passover. And he takes one of the cups, and it's the, the cup of drinking the, the, the wrath of God. And he takes it. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. And so he's explaining the meaning of the Passover, that the Passover had been given 1,500 years before, and Israel was to remember it but they were also to realize it pointed to something forward when one day God would completely deliver them, not from the bondage of physical slavery, but the bondage of physical slavery and spiritual slavery forever and ever by giving a Messiah. And that's what Jesus was saying He was. So we keep the Passover even now in the Lord's Supper. And I'd like for you to think with me for a moment about the Lord's Supper, would you? Let's think about why it is that you and I need to be thoughtful, regular participants in the Lord's Supper. Just as we are thoughtful, regular participants in hearing the Word of God and singing the hymns. Why do we need the Lord's Supper? And I fear that Protestants especially have diminished the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Our Catholic friends, our Episcopalian friends, some others celebrate the the Lord's Supper at least weekly. 
And sometimes we Protestants, low church Protestants, have diminished the Lord's Supper. We've said, well, we don't want to do it that often because you know it's so special and we don't want to take away the special nature of the Lord's Supper. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, If you only ate one meal a week, it'd be really special to you. You ever thought about that? (laughs) Why don't you cut back and just eat one a week and you'll really look forward to it. Uh, but you say, well, that's silly. Uh, well, yeah, it is. And so is the comment about the Lord's Supper. It's silly. Uh, if it's that special, then why don't we just eat and drink to our delight as often as we can? Uh, habits and history, historical patterns are hard to break. Uh, at Second Presbyterian, I think we've got it now so that on the average, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper every other week. If you take all of our Lord's Suppers, you're in the year. And that's pretty good for Presbyterians uh, who, who are historically once a quarter. Uh, but we need to, to delight ourselves in the Lord's Supper. Now, here, I'm going to give you some suggestions biblically as to why we and how we can delight ourselves in it. First of all, remember that in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a, re, it's a, it's a meal of remembrance. Remember what? His body that was broken for you. His blood that was poured out for you. Remember his death and burial. Remember his resurrection. But particularly remember his death and his passion for you. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying until he sweat blood with agony, thinking ahead about what he was going to endure for our poor sakes. Think about that. Think about what love that must be. Remember what he's done. So we remember. And we remember by eating not just listening, although we listen very carefully. In fact, let me, let me encourage you. At the Lord's Supper, watch all the motions of the pastor. He's going to break the bread. It's not just because it says so in the text, but because he wants you to see breaking the bread. Because by seeing it, you'll better remember what was done. Remember, worship is corporal. It's very physical. He's going to pour the cup. Just watch the motions and listen to everything. See if you can understand. If you have a, a more liturgical approach, well, even at Second Presbyterian, see if you can understand why we're doing everything that we do in the Lord's Supper celebration. Secondly, it's a sealing. And I say this because he says that by circumcision, one of the sacraments of the Old Testament, uh, our faith is sealed to us. Well, God seals his promises to us in the sacraments. So whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper, He's sealing something. It's like um, if you have the good housekeeping seal of approval, then that item, whatever it is, is sealed to you. It's marked. And God is sealing you with His promises. That is one of mine. And He does that with the Lord's Supper. You take the bread, you take the cup. He's sealing you. He's marking you as one of His people. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, you would never have meal with someone who was not your friend. And Jesus makes much of his disciples being at table with him. To be at table with someone was to be reconciled with someone. You never had an enemy at table with you. So if I'm at table with you, you're my friend. So you're the friends of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? It's a wonderful thing. A friend will lay down his life for his friends. So you are now among the friends of Jesus and that's sealed to you because you're welcomed at His table. So if you qualify to be invited and received at the table of the Lord, you're sealed as brother. 
Thirdly, there's a bonding. A bonding with each other in the family of Christ and a bonding with Him that takes place in the meal. And this is what, what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians ten seven. He says, don't you know that we're one with Christ and one with each other in the meal? So there's a unity that's expressed, experienced, and sacramentally bound in the meal. We eat as family, Christ's family. Fourthly, there's a participation with Christ. So, uh, you remember the Apostle Paul says that, don't you know that when we eat the bread, we are participating in, in Christ? There's a participation in His sufferings. For example, Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. So, when I eat the bread and drink the cup, I am fellowshipping in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and I am, in that sense, offering my body to be sacrificed with His body. Yikes. So I am entering into everything that it means to be one with Jesus Christ. Now, He's, he's ruling at the right hand of the Father. No one's ever going to get their hands on Him again. But they can get their hands on us. He's the head of the body. The body, ourselves, is on the, on the earth. And we can still be attacked, unlike him now. And when he was here physically, he was attacked. So we're saying we're one with Christ. We're participating with him in every way. There's a deep and profound fellowship when you come to the table with Christ and with each other. We're the family who participates in the body of Christ. Fifthly, there's a renewal of our obedience to him. Because you know, uh, the Apostle Paul said that we must be careful not to eat and drink condemnation to ourselves well by corollary then we are if we are in christ we are eating and drinking uh, acquittal and assurance and we're renewing our obedience to him we're saying that we wouldn't be at this table if we know that we're holding out against you if i'm nursing some sin no matter what it is whether it's greed or pride or racism or or gossip, or, or murder, or, or unforgiveness. If I'm harboring something and I refuse to repent, I'm holding up a weapon against the Lord, I'm not going to come to the table. You've got to drop your weapons. So when you come to the table, you drop your weapons, you renew your submission to Him, you renew your obedience to Him when you come to the table. Where am I? Sixthly? Sixthly, there's a nurture. Jesus says... Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll have eternal life. So eat the physical bread, eat the physical, drink the physical wine as a sacrament of eating and drinking on Him spiritually. In other words, take Him in, ingest Christ. Just as you take the food in your physical system, take Christ into your life. And He will nourish you and strengthen you as you do that by faith. Now, the sacrament's going to do you no good if it's not met by faith. Just like the Word of God does you no good if it's not met by faith. Jesus says that the sower sows the seed and some soil is so hard the birds come along and pick up the seed before it ever gets into the soil. So the seed did you no good at all. You heard it in your physical ear, but you didn't hear it in your spiritual ear. And the devil comes and takes that seed away. You don't even remember what it was. 
because you didn't put it into practice and you didn't believe. The same with the sacrament. If you believe what Jesus has done and if you believe He has instituted this meal for you and for His people to nourish you, you will be nourished. And so as you take the bread and the wine and actually eat it, say, Lord Jesus Christ, I am eating your flesh and drinking your blood. That is, I'm taking you into my life. And I want to be your servant. And I want you to live your life through me. And that's the reason I'm eating this meal. So you see, I'm looking at it in multiple ways. The Lord's Supper is like a diamond. It has many facets. And while I'm contemplating during the distribution of the elements, I'm contemplating all these facets. Don't think about your golf grip. You know, this is not a time to refigure something in your family budget, in your mind. Get your mind and heart in Christ. Engage the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Seventhly, assurance. Our assurance is strengthened by the sacrament. You should expect that. Those of you with low self-esteem, who are always condemning yourselves, who have very sensitive consciences, who are uh, introspective, in the way that you look at yourself and who constantly are creating doubts about whether you really belong to Him. You eat that bread and drink that cup. You've been received at the table of the Lord. Who do you think you are cutting yourself off from the meal when Jesus invited you there? The whole exercise of the meal is to help you remember something when you go home. I ate with Jesus today. I'm serious. I had a lunch appointment with Jesus today. And we had a conversation. So you think, you think he's not my friend? You think he's going to let me down? The supper is meant to boost your assurance that you belong to him. And then lastly, eighthly, the supper is meant to increase and enhance our anticipation. He says, drink this until I come anew in the kingdom of heaven. Drink this until I come again. So it's the until I come again. And what happens when he comes again? Gentlemen, He spreads the marriage feast of the Lamb out before us. A feast that will never end. All the feasts of Israel and all the feasts of the New Testament church will end in the eternal feast of Christ where we are His guests at His banquet. He will be the host at the table and it will be spread for us and we will be His friends in close intimacy with Him and each other forever and ever and ever. And when we're eating the Lord's Supper in this very humble setting, And I've had the Lord's Supper all over the world in some very poor and humble settings where the people couldn't afford bread and wine. And so we would take just little crumbs of this and a little juice from this and we would just do the best we could. And in that little humble setting, gentlemen, of all places there, I would think, what a day it's going to be when these people are surprised at what Jesus has in store for them. This feast is going to be totally converted into something of great beauty and grandeur. And that's what makes it beautiful right now is because you've been given the gift of rest in Jesus Christ and you've pushed back the margins of the world's demands on your time and you've given yourself the freedom to think and contemplate and rejoice in the things that you're just now tasting. You just get a little piece of bread and you just get a little taste of wine. It just wets your whistle just a little bit. And what does it tell you? Boy, there's a feast, an avalanche of joy that's coming behind this. You're just tasting it now. And any joy you have in this life is just tasting, foretasting what Christ has prepared for you.
That's the feast of the Passover that we're still keeping. Now, we've got three minutes, so quickly. We must keep the feast of Pentecost. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks of the Lord your God. Well, what was the feast of Pentecost? It was the ingathering of the first uh, harvest. But in Jewish history, it was primarily the celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai. And isn't it interesting that at Sinai, where the nation of Israel was really constituted as God's nation, it was on that very celebration that the gift of the Spirit came uh, after Jesus had ascended into heaven. It came on the Feast of Pentecost. In other words, just as the first fruits of the first harvest were brought in, God is sending His Spirit to gather the first fruits of His harvest, and He is doing it and by constituting the new Israel of God, just as they were constituted on Mount Sinai, there's a tremendous fulfillment of all the blessings that were foretold in the Feast of uh, Pentecost in the Old Testament. And we keep that feast. We still remember constantly the giving of the gift of the Spirit. We still thank God for that. And we're thoughtful of it all the time. And on and on it goes. Uh, we're running out of time, so let's look at verses 13 through 17. And we see that we must also keep the Feast of Booths. Now, this one's a little bit more difficult because there's not as clear a New Testament fulfillment except this. At the Feast of Booths, they remembered how God provided for them. And I would say to you, I really think the Feast of Booths is celebrated every Lord's Day and really every moment. Because you remember in Ephesians, Paul said, give thanks at all times for everything. And just as Israel, in the midst of their poverty, and they were a poor people, were reminded of God's provision for them, we who are not so poor relative to the world's uh, wealth must remember that we really are poor compared to what we're going to be, and we're poor spiritually compared to what God wants us to be now. But we thank Him for every act of provision He's made materially and spiritually all the time. And on the Feast of Booths, the law was to be read completely every seventh year, as we will see in Deuteronomy chapter 31. So, gentlemen, here's the point. That with all the press of time in your life, just remember, God has made you primarily for rest. Because one day, what do we get? Eternal rest. And does that mean we just sleep all the time? No. It means that we're delighting all the time in the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the most important thing for us to do now is to be sure that we're experiencing that eternal blessing even now in the way that He intends for us to experience it. And then that, above all things, will lead to the exercise of social justice and mission, caring for the poor, those two things go together in the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the rest that You give us. Thank You for the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we would come to Him today to find that rest. And then, Lord, we pray for our calendars. Please help us today to reset them as we need to, that there's rest for us, for our families, for our churches and enable us to enter into the deeper joy of each of these festivals 
in the Old Testament, which are perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we may be in festival every moment of every day, all because of what you've done for us in liberating us and filling us with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.